The scripture today is from 1 Corinthians 2, 1 through 16, and it's Paul writing to the Corinthians. And I, when I came to you, brothers, did not come proclaiming to you the testimony of God with lofty speech or wisdom, for I decided to know nothing among you except Jesus Christ and him crucified. And I was with you in weakness and in fear and in much trembling. And my speech and my message were not in plausible words of wisdom, but in the demonstration of the Spirit and of power, that your faith might not rest in the wisdom of men, but in the power of God. Yet, among the mature, we do impart wisdom, although it is not a wisdom of this age or of the rulers of this age who are doomed to pass away. But we impart a secret and hidden wisdom of God which God decreed from the ages for our glory. None of the rulers of this age understood this, for if they had, they would have not crucified the Lord of glory. But as it is written, what no eye has seen, nor ear heard, nor the heart of man imagined, what God has prepared for those that love him. These things God has revealed to us through the Spirit. For the Spirit searches even the depths of God, For who knows a person's thought except the spirit of that person which is in him? So also, no one comprehends the thoughts of God except the spirit of God. Now, we have received not the spirit of the world, but the spirit who is from God, that we might understand the things freely given us from God. And we impart this in words, but not taught by human wisdom, taught by the spirit, interpreting spiritual truths to those who are spiritual. The natural person does not accept these things of the Spirit of God, for they are folly to him, and he is not even able to understand them because they are spiritually discerned. The spiritual person judges all things, but he himself is to be judged by no one. For who has understood the mind of the Lord so as to instruct him? But we have the mind of Christ. This is the word of the Lord. Amen. Uh, thank you, Vicki. Uh, good morning. My name is Drew Bennett. I'm one of the pastors here at Church of the Redeemer. It's so good to uh, be with you during this Advent season. Since the beginning of the school year in August, we've been talking about wisdom, first from the book of Proverbs and now from the book of First Corinthians during Advent. Thank you, Jessica. Uh, and the theme of wisdom really dominates this first three or four chapters of First, first Corinthians. It's It's everywhere. And so I want to review for just a minute before we come to this text this morning. We've defined wisdom as being in touch with reality. Pretty simple. Wisdom is being in touch with reality. And that's the problem that Paul is addressing at the beginning of this letter. He says there is a worldly wisdom. That's the name he gives it. The wisdom of this world. A worldly wisdom that is a view of reality apart from God and God's revelation And so what Paul means is it's a wisdom, but it's a wisdom that is based upon unreality and not reality, and therefore it's not wisdom at all. It's foolishness, and those who live by it are fools. And this worldly wisdom has invaded the church at Corinth. And so Paul is writing to remind them about God's wisdom, God's reality, what he refers to as the gospel. And so we've seen the gospel is the wisdom of God in contrast to the wisdom of this world. And by gospel, I mean, we mean, Paul means the story of Christmas. The gospel is 
God coming down, the infinite becoming small, God in all of his strength and authority becoming weak. Think about the one who holds galaxies in the palm of his hand, all of him entirely present in a human embryo. You know, the eternal king of the universe becoming nothing, the word becoming flesh, as John says in John 1, to dwell among us. The gospel is Christ crucified. It is the cross, the symbol of weakness and defeat and shame, which is in truth the triumph of God and the strength and the power of God to save. And so when we say that Jesus is the truth, we mean that in Jesus God is breaking through and subverting our unreality in order to save us. This gospel, this upside-down, ironic, counterintuitive gospel that is yet the wisdom of God. And so Jesus is the truth. That's our theme for this week. That this is what we mean. The story of Christmas, the story of God born a baby in Bethlehem, this story is the reality upon which we should build our lives. And that's what it means to be a Christian. It means your whole way of understanding the world, your reality, your wisdom is based upon this outrageous story. But here's what I want you to see as far as what we're going to talk about this morning. What that means is, is ultimately that makes you a messenger. It makes you a messenger. Christmas makes us messengers. It makes us proclaimers. And so you see this in the story of, of the shepherds coming to visit the child Christ in Bethlehem at his birth. And upon their visiting him and their worshiping and adoring him, they're sent away. And as they go away, they go proclaiming the good news of the Christ, son of David, born in the city of David. And there's, some, there's an impulse about what you know, Christmas means as far as how it turns us into messengers that you find. Even in the old song that we don't sing because maybe it's a little cheesy, but maybe we should sing it more often. Go tell it on the mountain. Right? Over the hills and everywhere, go tell it on the mountain that Jesus Christ is born. It's a a kid's song, but maybe it should be an anthem that we sing because what part of what Christmas does, Christmas turns us into messengers. And if you're here and you're a Christian, the Bible is very clear. Your life mission, your work is to proclaim the gospel of Jesus Christ. We are, Paul, Peter, excuse me, Peter reminds us, we are a chosen generation a royal priesthood, a holy nation, so that God has done that work in our life so that we might proclaim the praises of him who called us out of darkness into his marvelous light. So if you're a Christian and the gospel is your reality, your wisdom, then God's purpose in rescuing you is to make you a proclaimer. And this passage here in 1 Corinthians 2 is a a passage about being being a gospel proclaimer. It's about gospel proclamation. And I want to say, this is a really important subject in light of the events in Connecticut this past Friday. I really struggled all week with this sermon. Because I just, it just, it it really feels like it's a sermon for me and not for you, and that's weird. Until Friday. Because the events that happened on Friday, it brought all of this into focus for me. What our world needs from us, you and me, the most, right now, at this moment, is that we would be telling the story of Christmas. I was struck by that last night. We talked a lot about last night. If you were able to be there, I hope it was a blessing to you. And if you weren't, um, then, you know, we missed you. And I know some of you, just the power, if you want to know the power of last night for my family, um, 
we were, I'm going to get emotional. I got to try not to get emotional. You ready? I don't know why I'm so emotional this morning. Uh, but we're walking out of the theater. And my 10-year-old turns to Ashley and I and he says, he says, Dad, the end of that was so good it made me want to cry. You know, and I, it just, it came on him powerfully. And I, I just am overwhelmed by sitting in that theater. And I've heard that thing probably a hundred times. I've listened to it on my iPod a bunch. Uh, but the power of telling the story of Christmas, that Behold the Lamb of God, which we went to last night, I've, I've listened to it hundreds of times. I've seen it twice now, but it still reduces me to tears when Joe Phillips sings the line, But the baby in her womb, he was the maker of the moon. He was the author of the faith that can make the mountains move, and I just am undone. I mean, I'm undone every time because of the implications of that truth for me and my family in the world that we live in. If that's really true, if that's really true, then what difference does that make? And I've seen a lot, a lot of people all over social media this week asking, you know, why? You know, losing sleep and, and grieving and whatnot. And, and we have an incredible gift to give them. And it is the gift of the message of Christmas. And so I want to say to you as a church, our job right now is to tell the story of Christmas to answer the question why. Because our story provides, provides an answer. I remember after the Columbine shooting, Larry King interviewed Billy Graham, and he asked Billy Graham, you know, why? Why did, why did, this, why did this happen? Where, you know, what's God doing? What's going on? And Billy Graham's answer was great. He didn't say, you know, well, it's because there are too many guns, or it's the violent video games these kids play these days, or it's the disintegration of the family and society. He didn't say any of that. He was asked the question why, and Billy Graham paused for a moment. He looked Larry King in the eye, and he said, Larry, at the very beginning of human history, there was a man and a woman in a garden. And he told the story. And so I want to say, tell the story. Tell the story to answer the question why, but tell the story of Christmas to answer the question, where's God in all this? Because you see, our story answers that question too. And the answer is he's right here among us, not standing apart. As the old hymn says, come to earth to taste our sadness. He whose glories knew no end. By his life, he brings us gladness, our redeemer, shepherd, friend. I mean, Jesus was a man of sorrows, acquainted with grief, the ultimate innocent victim who suffered at the hands of innocent, violent men. So tell the story. Tell the story to answer the question, why? Tell the story to answer the question, where is God? And tell the story to point people to the ultimate hope. That what we believe and what we celebrate in Advent, the way that the people of God for 400 years between the Testaments waited for the coming of Messiah, that we are a people who've been waiting 2,000 years, and yet our ultimate hope is that we declare Jesus coming again to finally vanquish evil and to make all things new. And that's our hope. And it's the hope for the families in Connecticut today. And it's the hope for our world. And so I want you to see, Christmas makes us messengers. But... Here's the question. How does Christmas affect the way we share the message of Christmas? That's the question I want to get at this morning. Because you see, the weak, foolish gospel was not only the message Paul shared with the Corinthians, it was also how he shared the message. He came to them in weakness. He came to them as a fool. And so my my goals this morning 
because I feel like I'm coming to you in weakness too. It's been a busy week. Last night was a late night. And I'm really having to live by faith this morning. And so I just want to be helpful. And I want to try to further illustrate this upside-downness of the wisdom of, of the gospel by showing you that Christmas not only makes you a messenger, but it also gives you a particular way that we as God's people formed by the gospel are to go about sharing the message of Christmas. And so if you're here and you're a Bible college student or you're preparing for ministry, this is going to be a home-run message for you. But for the rest of you, I have no idea what you're going to do with what I'm going to say. <laughs> it's got, because this is really, Paul is writing about what it means to be in ministry and share the gospel with people. But then, you know, I'm reminded that's the work all of us are called to do, isn't it? And so apply this to all of the ways that God has made you a messenger to your kids, to your friends, to your family, to the world around us, we are called to share the gospel, the message of Christmas, but to share the gospel in a particular way because of the message of Christmas. So three things that I want you to see that Paul gives us insight into, and we're really just going to deal, I had, I had Vicky read the whole passage, we're really just going to deal with the first five verses. Uh, three things here I want you to see. First, the simplicity of the message. Secondly, the humility of the, of the messenger. And then thirdly, the dependency of the audience. Audience, Okay, the simplicity of the message, the humility of the, of the messenger, and the dependency of the audience. Aristotle's theory of persuasion had three parts. What he called the logos, the ethos, and the pathos. The logos, the content, the message itself. The ethos, he meant the integrity or the believability and the character of the messenger. And then the pathos. In other words, the passion of the audience and how you connect your message with them to ignite that passion. And so all three parts of Aristotle's theory of persuasion are here in this text. And they're the three points in the outline. But what you see is there's an upside-downness to them that we have to embrace if we were to be faithful in our efforts to proclaim the gospel. And so that's what we're going to do this morning, okay? You didn't know you were coming to get a a lesson in Aristotle's theory of persuasion this morning. And yeah, that's what we're going to do. Okay, first... How does Christmas affect the way we share the message of Christmas? And the first thing Paul mentions in the text is the simplicity of the message, okay? So the simplicity of the message. Malcolm Gladwell, who's a staff writer for The New Yorker, wrote a book in 2002, which I really love. It's called The Tipping Point. And it's a book that describes how social epidemics and style trends get started. And one of the most important factors, he says, in successfully communicating your ideas and your products so that you reach more and more people He's figuring out how to make the message what he called sticky. In other words, the message has got to be such that you make sure it doesn't go in one ear and out the other, but it makes an impact. It lodges itself in the imagination of the person so that when people hear an advertisement, for example, they they can't get it out of their head. It sticks in their memory. Now, one of the best examples that's funny, um, back in the 90s, I think it was the 90s, I can't remember, but somewhere back there, Uh, there's this commercial with these three old ladies, and they're at this counter of what's presumably a um, fast food restaurant, and yet it looks more like a bank. It's kind of weird. And they're examining this hamburger, and they say, oh, look at this big fluffy bun. It's very nice. Oh, it's so great. And they open the bun, this huge bun, and there's like this little nickel-sized piece of hamburger, right? And then you get the grumpy old lady who looks like, where's the beef? Right? And then pretty soon she's going through drive-thrus and yelling at the people in the drive-thrus, where's the beef? Are you with me? Everybody remember this? Where's the beef? And this thing was, I mean, Wendy's hit a home run with it, right? It was, a, it was, it was absolutely an amazing advert because everybody was running around saying, where's the beef? It's stuck. And so it's just this great example of what it means to have a sticky message. Or try this one, and this is way before my time, but I have an idea. 
Some of you, finish this sentence if you can. Winston tastes good. Like a cigarette. It's okay, we're in church. You can stay that kind of stuff. It's all right. Right? Way before my time, that was in the 50s. But those of you who were around, it was interesting. I, I, I went and just to check with Connie. And I'm not allowed to say how old she is, but, okay? I went into Connie's office today, and I said, I said, Connie, Winston tastes good. She said, like a cigarette should. I said, okay, she's got it. And what was fascinating was that she was born four years after the ad came out. And yet it took such hold uh, at that time period that, that you know, I get, maybe she grew up hearing it on television. I don't know. But it's just these ideas of sticky messages. This, this is what we mean. And so in terms of modern advertising strategies, companies spend billions of dollars every year trying to figure out how to sell their products and ideas. But the underlying assumption being that if you're going to be successful, you have to package your message right. It has to be appealing to people. It has to be creative. But what I want you to see is in, this, in, the, in these verses, Paul completely rejects this idea. He says, look there in verse 1, I did not come proclaiming to you the testimony of God with lofty speech or wisdom. You see that? I didn't come proclaiming to you the testimony of God with lofty speech or wisdom. That word translated lofty speech means something that is excessive or sophisticated. So what Paul's saying is, is Paul avoided anything complicated. He didn't use PowerPoint to illustrate his ideas. He didn't alliterate the points of his sermon outline. He didn't preach a 10-week sermon series on the family and call it Extreme Home Makeover and use the logo from the TV show as a backdrop behind him while he was preaching. Right? He wasn't worried about being creative or catchy or cool. Instead, look at verse 2. He says, For I decided to know nothing among you except Jesus Christ. And him crucified. He had a simple message. I mean, Paul was not concerned with entertaining people. He gave no thought to how to package Christianity. He had one simple goal, to impact people with the gospel of Jesus Christ crucified. And all of his energy went into the simple proclamation of the gospel. He didn't make any use of rhetorical conventions of the day. Not because he wasn't smart enough to. But because he understood something. And this is the counterintuitive part. He understood That anything beyond the simple message of the cross didn't help. It actually hindered the work of the Spirit. And that's the point he's making. He says, I didn't come to you. I I, I decided to know nothing among you except Jesus Christ and him crucified. A simple message. Now, how does this help us to go about the work of gospel proclamation? I want to make two points of application. I'm going to do this with every point. I'm going to lead to some application. I want you to see the cross is the curriculum. Secondly, I want you to see that, therefore, we should avoid at all costs the mistake of trying to move beyond it. Now, what do I mean? What do I mean when the cross is the curriculum? I mean that whenever, whatever the work is you're trying to accomplish, maybe it's in your kids, for example. Whatever the work is you're trying to accomplish through the proclamation of the gospel, the solution is the cross. And so, a couple of weeks ago, one of the moms in our church was talking to me about one of her kids who was struggling with self-pity and a lack of gratitude and just a general bad attitude. I caught her after a DBG group she's a part of and asked her how it was going. She said, i got to go home right now and preach justification by faith to him. I thought, that's right. That's it. That's exactly what he needs. Right? Because where does ingratitude come from? Where does self-pity come from? It feels like I've done something that's earned me something that I've not gotten. And what does the doctrine of justification tell me? I've not earned anything except condemnation. And yet Jesus Christ has shown his love to me. So you see, 
the word of the cross, Paul says, is foolish to those who are perishing, but to us who are being saved, it is the power of God. There's a, the simple truth of the cross, Paul says, is spiritual dynamite. So how do you help somebody with their fear or with their anxiety? The cross. I mean, how do you help somebody who's proud? You take them to the cross. How do you help somebody who, who's struggling with low, self, low self-esteem? I mean, the answer is the cross. Look at Look at what God's done for you. What about a guilty conscience? You take the wrath of God came down upon. There is no condemnation because of the for those who are in Christ Jesus, right? Whatever it might be, whatever the work is you're trying to do, whatever the application of the principle of gospel proclamation is, the answer to all of those things is always the cross. So the second thing then is where there's still work to do. Where unbelief still prevails, don't think what you need is a new curriculum or a new strategy. You need to just keep going back to the cross. Don't stop going to the cross. It's a simple message. So how does Christmas affect the way we share the message of Christmas? The first thing Paul mentions about his ministry is the simplicity of the message. The second thing is the humility of the messenger. Do you see that? Secondly, the humility of the messenger. Now, Aristotle said... That persuasion is a matter of the logos, the content, joining with the ethos of the messenger to impact the audience. But what is ethos? Here's the best way I know how to explain it. If if you've ever been up at 2 a.m. in in the morning with insomnia or or whatever it might be, and you're flipping through the channels on the television and there's an infomercial on, and what they're selling on the infomercial, if you you know, it's late, you're already exhausted, so you're not rational to begin with. But you start watching these things and you think, you know, I'd like to have one of those things. It's pretty cool, and it's only nineteen ninety-nine. You know? But then you watch for a few minutes and the guy selling it is just a little too excited. Right? Just a little too positive and glowing about this pro- product. And he's a little too cheesy or whatever it might be, and you begin to think, you know, I don't know about that, and then you flip the channel, keep going. What happened? See, your lack of confidence in the credibility of the person selling the product was a deal breaker. And that's what Aristotle meant by ethos. In order to be persuaded, you have to trust the messenger. And for Aristotle, the qualities that were important for this trust were what he called intelligence. In other words, that the person is knowledgeable in the subject matter. Character, that they're a person of conviction. They have moral standards uh, that you can trust. They're not going to take advantage of you. And thirdly, he said intelligence, character, and goodwill, that they're for you, that they really are trying to help. They're not in it for themselves. We would add things like dynamism, energy, likability, whatever it might be. These are the kinds of things in other people that cause us to respond to them. So Malcolm Gladwell, in the book I told you about earlier, he went on in the book to describe how in order to start a social epidemic, you need a small group of highly influential, highly capable, highly energetic people to get the word out. And to illustrate, he tells the story of an experiment by Stanley Milgram in the 1960s. And Milgram, what he did was, this is, this is so fascinating to me. So this is just for my benefit. This is completely free. It may not even connect and have anything to do with the rest of the sermon, but I thought it was cool, so I wanted to share it. Okay? Um, Milgram mailed out 160 um, packages to people that he randomly selected from the phone book in Omaha, Nebraska. And in the packet that he sent was the name and address of a stockbroker who worked in Boston and lived in a nearby city in Massachusetts. 
And each person was instructed to write his or her name on the packet and then send it on to a friend or a family member who they thought might get it closer to the stockbroker. And he was trying to measure how many times the package would have to go from person to person before it would ultimately end up in the hands of the, of the guy in Massachusetts. Now, any ideas? How many times would you think? He asked his friends, and most of them said something like 100. But what he found was that most of the letters reached the stockbroker in five or six steps. And that's where we get the idea of six degrees of separation from, if you've ever heard. It came from that study. Now, here's the interesting part. 24 of the letters came to the man at his home. And of those 24, 16 of them were given to him by the same person. Right? The rest of the letters reached him at his office, and the majority of those came through just two other men. So half of all of the packets that reached the stockbroker were delivered to him by three people. Now, the point that Malcolm Gladwell is making is this. He says, it mean, that means that a very small number of people are linked to everyone else in a few steps, and the rest of us are linked to the world through those special people. In other words, he says there are certain, quote-unquote, special people, influential people, popular people, people with a magnetic personality that exude confidence. Those are the people that really matter. Those are the people that you need on your team. Those are the people that you need with the product in your hand because they're the ones that are going to get the message out and be really, really successful in the proclamation of the message. And that's a prevailing worldly wisdom that it's made its way into our culture in so many, so many ways. And my concern is this, that the reason so many people struggle with evangelism because they lack self-confidence, that is, they perceive that in order to be a good gospel proclaimer, you have to be one of those special people. Paul says that's simply not true. Aristotle and Malcolm Gladwell are right that ethos does matter, but the kind of person that you really are is really important, but what makes the difference is not your courage or how charming you are or how well-connected you might be. Look what Paul says in the text. He says, I was with you in weakness and fear and much trembling. Now, let me just, in case you didn't catch that, that isn't exactly the kind of thing you would put on your resume if you were a pastor looking for a job at a church, right? Paul's Paul's saying what the Corinthians experienced him wasn't very impressive. One historical account refers to him, and this is a quote, as a man small of stature, with a bald head, crooked legs, with eyebrows meeting, and a nose somewhat hooked. Now, that guy said Paul had a unibrow, and that you can't make that up, okay? <laughs> and I guess it wasn't in fashion 2,000 years ago either. Paul with a unibrow and a crooked nose. That's awesome. I just laughed. See, there's another gospel correction that's happening here. Paul did not have the kind of personality and ethos that Aristotle believed to be so crucial for persuasion. He wasn't attractive. He could be a little too grumpy and prone to melancholy. And like me, he was way too serious, but he was humble. See, that's what I want you to see. There was humility. There was no bravado in Paul, no, no cockiness, no condescension. And so according to this, he says, I came to you in weakness and fear and much trembling. And that is just a description of a person who is just humble. And so according to the passage, success in gospel proclamation is tied not to intelligence or dynamism, or giftedness, but to humility. Tell the simple story and be humble. But one last thing before we move on to the last point. 
Think about how Paul's ethos of humility was helpful in communicating the gospel message. What was Paul's message? From Philippians 2. Christ Jesus, though he was God, did not grasp on to his power and authority. He refused to, and, and refused to let go of it, but he made himself nothing. He, this is my paraphrase, he came down out of heaven and became a man. And during his life, he did not live among the rich, rich and the cultural elites. He was born in obscurity and lived his whole life among the working class. God, in Jesus Christ, did not come to be served, but to serve and to be obedient to the Father's will, even to the point of his death on the cross as a substitute for our sins. That's the gospel message. God stooping down in Jesus Christ to save. God humbling himself. God becoming nothing. Friends, church, shame on us if we are ever condescending or smug or anything other than humble in sharing that gospel message. If you're a Christian, you are saved by the humility of God. And that should make us humble first of all and in, in everything else. Now, let me make a couple of specific applications. The real contrast is between humility and, and self-confidence. The trembling Paul describes is the feeling of insufficiency and inadequacy under the weight of his responsibility to the churches. Right? And nobody wants that in a pastor either, by the way. <laughs> That's my own private joke. Okay? People don't respond well to leaders who feel who tremble and feel the inadequacy and the insufficiency of their work. We want self-confident people. We want people who are going to take charge. We want people who, who, you know, who lay it down. And so in all the ways that you're being called to be a gospel proclaimer, there are all kinds of applications. One of those, one of the, an immediate, obvious application of what it means to come to people as a humble messenger would be that part of your message is the confession of your own sins. It's impossible to share the gospel message of what it means to you without starting with how it has humbled you and you've had to deal with the reality of your own sin. Pastors aren't allowed to be sinners either. See, they aren't, we aren't allowed to be weak. And that may be why 80% of the guys who graduate from seminary are out of the ministry in five years. You know? Because, because to come humbly means we, we start with confession. But whatever the work is that you're doing, whether it's with your kids or in the community, whatever, if you're involved in a nonprofit, for you to be this, this humble messenger that Paul describes in weakness and trembling and fear, then prayer better be a part of what you do too. And so there's just some applications of what it means. You know, start with confession, bathe it in prayer, and be like Paul, this humble messenger of the simple truth of the gospel. So... How does Christmas affect the way we proclaim the message of Christmas? We've seen the simplicity of the message and the humility of the messenger. The third thing then from the passage is the reason why Paul chose a simple message and why he ministered in humility. It was because of the dependency of the audience. See, the third part, working ourselves through, the theory of persuasion. The third part of Aristotle's theory of persuasion is pathos. And for Aristotle, then, the goal was to connect to the emotions and passions of the audience in order to induce a response. So a person with sympathos, sympathy, is a person who's connected to the feelings of others. A person apathos or apathy is the opposite. It describes someone who isn't moved at all by the emotions of other people. It's a person who's disconnected. And so, so what you're trying to do in your communication is trying to get in there and through, and through whatever means necessary, induce the response you want to induce 
from the person you're talking to and trying to persuade. But then there comes the gospel correction. And what Paul teaches in these verses is that it is not the responsibility of the messenger to elicit the response from the audience. That's God's work. And I've got to be honest with you, that just made me sit in my office and just breathe a sigh of relief. Paul came to Corinth with a hard message, and he himself was rather unimpressive. Okay, that's not exactly the recipe for success. <laughs> and yet he says it was intentional. I was with you in weakness and fear and much trembling. My speech and my message were not implausible words of wisdom. Look down at verses 3 through 5. In other words, everything about Paul was understated. Verse 5, so that your faith might not rest in the wisdom of men, but in the power of God. Paul means this, that the faith of the Corinthians, their response to the gospel message might be a result of God's work in their life and not a response of some sort of emotional appeal on Paul's part. I ought to be careful. I don't want you to think I'm making fun. But I grew up in a Baptist church. One particular, one particular Baptist church I served in for a while in Orlando, uh, the guy there who was the preacher was, was famous for the long altar calls that he would give at the end of the service. And so we would sing just as I am, like all, I don't know, if there, are, if there are 14 verses, we sang all of them. If not, we just recycled. And we would get about eight or nine verses in, and, you know, nobody had come forward for two or three verses, and he would get up and he would say something, listen, people, listen, if nobody comes during this next verse, I'm, I'm going to close the service. I'll do it. I promise I'll do it. I'm going to close it. And Ashley and I are in the back, go, please close the service. Please just close the service. You know, and you would get down, and nobody's come for two or three verses, and you get to the last line of the verse, and then, boop, somebody comes out of the aisle and starts walking. You're like, oh, five more verses we have to sing again. Oh, you know. And it was just this amazing reality. I mean, people can be manipulated. And I'm not saying that's what was happening. Okay? I'm saying that you got to be careful. It felt that way, but I cannot, I cannot say for sure. Because people came to faith and God was doing stuff, right? But, but what Paul's, Paul is saying, I'm staying as far away from all of that sort of things I possibly can. Because the goal of gospel proclamation is, is clear, it's faith, but the danger is that you don't want to induce or coerce a decision in an emotional moment. That's what he's worried about. And so Paul was deliberately understated because he understood that God had to come to work in his ministry of proclamation and work in the hearts of his audience to produce faith. And where does God work? Where does God's power show up? I will boast all the more gladly of my weaknesses so that the power of Christ may rest upon me for when I am weak, then I'm strong. So do you. Who, what are you relying on? How are you trying to get your work done? Is your hope in your ability, your skill, your competency, your personality? Paul was relying solely on the Spirit's work in the hearts of his hearers. And the rest of chapter 2, which I don't have time to get to, is an extended argument for the fact that God brings people to faith through the powerful work of the Holy Spirit in their hearts. Faith is produced by God and God's Spirit, not by human skill or power or wisdom. Do you understand that? If faith is what God does, then it doesn't depend upon you and me. Isn't that good news? It doesn't mean we don't have work to do, okay? But at the end of the day, it doesn't, it doesn't depend upon you and me. And so I look at my kids and I pray that God would grace them with faith and repentance, yet I know that I'm completely and utterly powerless to make that happen. I'm completely dependent, and so are they, upon God for that work in their life. And so in one sense, it makes me hypervigilant in my parenting of them, but never in a way that suggests that it's my work, not God's, that will make the difference. 
So one of my goals, I have this, this is totally me, but I have this list of 15 goals. Of my, I have 15 goals for my parenting of my kids. And one of my goals, I just stated like this. I said, to not get in the way of God's working in their life. He's their true father. See, that's faith. Now, the kids are about to come in, and we're going to celebrate this meal. But here's what I want to say. Everything about what Paul says regarding gospel proclamation in this passage is upside down. He says it's the simplicity of the message of Christ crucified, not a message that appeals. It's humility and weakness in the messenger instead of competency. It's quiet confidence in God to work, not manipulation or coercion. So it cuts against the prevailing theories of marketing and advertisement in our culture and goes against everything we believe about what works. And yet, Paul says, it is the wisdom of God. Simplicity, humility, dependency, those words define every part of Christianity. But what I, you know, what I thought this morning is there's a vulnerability in those three words that might leave you unsettled. They do me because they require faith. They force me into a posture of faith. And by faith, I mean the opposite of power and self-sufficiency and control. Trusting. Trusting God and relying upon God to work in my life and the life of those, love, those, those I love. And so I find myself praying a lot, Lord, I believe. But help. Help me in my unbelief. And that's the, that's the beauty and the mercy of this table we come to now. So would you pray with me? Lord Jesus, as we gather as your people around this table that you have provided for us, we do pray what I just said. Lord, we believe. Help our unbelief. Would you use this meal we celebrate together this morning as an aid to our faith that we might be people who are willing to embrace the radically upside-down nature of the gospel, even in our work as proclaimers of that gospel to the world who so desperately needs to hear, we pray. In the power of Jesus' name and by his spirit and for his glory. Amen. Amen. At the end of Mark's gospel, Jesus turns to his followers and says, Go now into all the world and proclaim the gospel to the entire creation. Uh, we end our services the way we do because we want to remind ourselves that we are, we are the ecclesia of God, those called together in order to be sent out by our Lord and Master into the world with the work that he's given us to do. And that work is clearly defined. Go into all nations. Proclaim the gospel to the entire creation. Baptize, make disciples and baptize those who come to faith in the name of the Father, Son, and the Holy Spirit. But the promise is that as he sends us out as his people, messengers of the story of Christmas, he promises to go with us. And so at the end of Matthew's gospel, he said, Surely I am with you always to the end of the age. And that is the promise of this benediction, that as you go, that he goes before you, he goes with you, he comes behind you to work his purposes in all the earth. So rest in his power and his presence, even as you go to be proclaimers of the good news to a world that so desperately needs to hear. Receive the benediction. May the Lord bless you and keep you. May the Lord make his face shine upon you, be gracious to you. May the Lord turn his face towards you and give you his peace, both now and forevermore. Amen. Amen. Go in his peace.